Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we venture into chapters 8 through 11 of the book of Ezekiel, where the glory of God leaves the Jerusalem temple. We'll only get to cover the first two chapters of that massive showstopper, but as we do, we'll slow down to think about the way we think God turns away from us, and the way he actually does in this passage. If you haven't been following The Rebind on social media, you should, because if you saw some of the posts on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, you'd know that now you could be listening to this right now on Spotify. That's right, your favorite green circle that lets you listen to your favorite music now lets you listen to your favorite podcast too. And yes, I just slipped in the subliminal message that The Rebind is your favorite podcast. So, Spotify, The Rebind Check it out. Well, today we're starting to take the journey through Ezekiel 8 to 11. And man, it's a big one, as in it's a big deal. There's a lot to uncover here. So I'm not going to take any time for our usual recap and witty banter. Uh, Also, because witty banter is hard when you're monologuing. But I will say this. Now would be a great time to pause and reread Ezekiel up to chapter 8 before you come back and press play. Now, there's no homework assignments here. It's not in order, but it'd be a good way to refresh on what we've covered so far. And I happen to think that one of the most rewarding parts of studying the Bible is just going back, reading through a book normally, and getting an even richer experience doing that because of what you've learned. So that's my suggestion. But regardless, let's start in Ezekiel 8. So if you recall... Ezekiel chapter 4 and 5, we've read about these vivid, elaborate, multi-part, acted-out prophecies. We've got a clay-modeled Jerusalem, Ezekiel bound up with a disgusting diet, and so forth. And chapter 6 continues that vivid, concrete nature of the prophecies by directing the prophecies to the far-off mountains of Israel, actually making the mountains the target. But then chapter 7 serves as a kind of bridge into our literary unit for today. Chapter 7 was a climax with its own right, with unfolding verbal descriptions like scenes in a movie. But the indictments there were pretty general. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will punish you for all your abomination, verse 3 says, and again in verse 8. They cast their silver into the streets, and their gold is like an unclean thing, verse 19 says. And then in verse 20, they made their abominable abominable images and their detestable things of it. The land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence, verse 23 tells us. So the punishment depicted in chapter 7 is really vivid, but the actual crimes that they're being punished for aren't. Here, though, as we transition to an entirely new vision, the indictments get real. The actual crimes get vivid. And the sacrilege of all that's sacred is something that we're forced to gaze at and be appalled because of. 
So kind of like we did for chapters four and five, I've asked Marianne McCarty to read chapters eight and nine for us. And as she does, we'll interject to talk through what we're hearing as we go. This is Ezekiel 8 and 9 in the New American Standard Version. It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of the Lord of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. Now, even though we're only covering chapters 8 and 9, it's really all of Ezekiel 8 through 11 that covers this single vision. This time, it's not just that we can group the themes together, like with 4 to 7, or it's not just the subject and character focus, like in 1 to 3. It's very clear and explicit that this is all one section. When you compare the first four verses of chapter 8 to the last four verses of chapter 11, the words form a frame around the entire section. 8, 1 through 4 talks about the exiles that Ezekiel is interacting with. Then it jumps into this vision God is giving to Ezekiel, and he's transported, visionally speaking, to Jerusalem, where he perceives the glory of God. So fast forward to the end in chapter 11, verses 22 to 25, and the same thing happens in reverse order. The glory of God leaves. Spoiler alert. Ezekiel is transported, visionally speaking, back from Jerusalem. The vision ends, and he interacts with the exiles around him. That backwards framing is a super common Hebrew way of organizing stories and texts. So it's proof that the way Ezekiel was put together Chapters 8 through 11 are a united, single package. And I realize at this point you're probably wondering, like, why are you making such a big deal of literary units? We're not literature professors here, dude. If we're only going to cover chapters 8 and 9 today, who really cares that 8 through 11 technically all goes together? Big deal. Well, it is a big deal, even just for casual readers. Because if you think about it, where we mark the beginning and end of a story or a legal document or a letter or whatever has a huge effect on what message we take away from it. Where's the focus? How do all the parts fit together to make a whole? If we've got the parts wrong, then we'll inevitably get the whole wrong too because we won't be factoring in all the data. Think about Star Wars, okay? When you watch the original three films, Episodes 4 through 6, no comment on quality here or anything. What would you say the movie is about? Or who would you say the movie is about, maybe? Probably Luke Skywalker, right? But then when you add in the prequels, the later episodes 1 through 3, is the movie still about Luke Skywalker? Is the whole series really about him? Well, no, not really. Actually, 
With movies one to three in the mix, the whole series becomes about Anakin Skywalker instead. It's Darth Vader's story now. All because where we marked the beginning and the end of the story. So that's why we're stressing the bounds of a passage, the groupings of chapters, the literary units here on the Rebind, because when we see what the text itself tells us about what parts go together, we'll better understand all the different sections of the book and what their message is. If we stop at chapters 8 and 9, we may miss what the full intended message of 8 through 11 is. But just for the sake of practical time restraints, we're going to treat this like 8 through 11 part 1 today and 8 through 11 part 2 next time. All right, one final thing I need to say to set us up for what's going to come. Don't gloss over that last verse of what we heard read, verse 4. The glory of the God of Israel was there in this temple. Yes, this is a divine vision. It's not a documentary, but that's not just a figure of speech either, okay? The temple was so incredibly important to the Israelites, and and it's so incredibly important to the storyline of the Bible too, that we cannot miss this. It's not just a church building. It's not just a meeting place for God's people. It's the designated location where key aspects of God's people's relationship with him would play out. All right, so the temple was where you'd go to make sacrifices so that you could deal with the sins and uncleanness that separated you from the holy God. It's not an optional conference center for church retreats. The temple was where a particular manifestation of God's presence, his glory, was focused. Where people could even direct their prayers, where foreign nations could could look at and say, that Yahweh, that Lord God is with his people. Okay, that's huge. The more we get how big a deal the temple was, the more this vision will hit us like it's supposed to. All right rambling too much. Chapter 8. We heard the first four verses. We have a new date on the timeline marked for us, which is another way of signaling we're into a new section of prophecy. The setup's done. Ezekiel is in the middle of this hair-grabbing vision of the Jerusalem temple. Now, let's keep going and take a gander at what exactly it is Ezekiel sees. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary? But yet, you will see still greater abominations. Mortal, look, pay attention, notice what I'm noticing, God says to his spokesman. Do you see what they're doing? That line, that idea of seeing, noticing, is woven throughout this vision in incredibly clever and probing ways. So pay attention to that. Do you see? Well, it's not even over. It's not even time to shut your eyes. There's more to see. This is kind of like chapters 4 and 5. We have this elaborate display going on with the multiple different scenes to it. 
different places the camera pans to in the panorama that's being described. Only this time, it's not the prophets acted out prophecies that are so detailed and multifaceted. It's the people's vivid rebellion. But it's even worse this time. The stage isn't some house in the land of Babylon. It's the Jerusalem temple. What's supposed to be a house of God. Just like Ezekiel 4 and 5 had this four-part wait, there's more to it. Ezekiel 8 has a four-part wait, there's more. With each part ending in that frightening refrain, you'll see even worse abominations yet, Ezekiel. So verses 5 to 6, which we just heard, is that first part. It's an image of jealousy north of the altar gate of the temple. Now, again, because of the humble scope of this podcast, we're not going to be able to unpack everything there is to say about all these parts in chapter 8 or chapter 9. So instead, I'm just going to give you what I think is key background info that you'll need to know to understand what's being depicted. And then we'll focus on that brilliant play on seeing and, and noticing as we reflect. So key background info to know about this first part, verses 5 to 6. We're starting out intentionally broad and ambiguous, but the focus of this abomination is a statue of jealousy. Now, it would have been some kind of sculpted idol of what exactly we're not told, but the point is not how to crack this code, what the statue actually looks like. The point is the Lord's response to it. Jealousy. Not the jealousy we're perpetrators of, the selfish, distorted greed that wants what we can't have, but more like what happens when God's active love and faithfulness are faced with that. It's more like the healthy kind of exclusivity that a husband or wife wants with their spouse. And almost like posting a picture of their affair on the front door of their house the Israelites set up a statue of a popular demon at the entrance of the temple. The north entrance. Subtle hint, maybe? Who comes from the north in this book? Attackers. In fact, in chapter 1, the Lord, the thunderous warrior, comes from the north in Ezekiel's vision. So why set up an idolatrous statue at the north of the temple? Protection, probably? Seems to work for other people, so why not bank on these popular gods to keep out the invaders? If that's what's going on here, then it's especially ironic, considering what we've already seen in Ezekiel's chapter 1 vision of God coming from the north, and the definite coming invasion of Babylon. Their new lover isn't going to deliver on what they hoped. It's worthless. But it's a statue that provokes jealousy. Okay, let's move to part 2 now, verses. 7 to 13. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. He said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel, with Jehozaniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them. 
each man with his censer in his hand, and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. Okay, so wow. In some strange kind of anti-escape room way, Ezekiel is told to worm his way through to some dark and secret meetings going on within the temple itself. In the chambers, in the wall. Remember everything we were just saying about the temple. Yeah, right in there. This is happening. Not just an idol out by the gate. Idols everywhere carved into the fabric of the temple. What was supposed to happen was, the further you moved into the Holy of Holies, the more concentrated and sacred the space. But the further we move into the temple in this vision, the more concentrated and horrifying the profanities. And notice who's perpetrating this. The elders of the house of Israel. The leaders. It's like having a vision of your denomination's big regional conference, only you look into the rooms and all the pastors and bishops are practicing witchcraft and worshiping the devil. Also notice that it's the elders of Judah that are sitting around Ezekiel in Babylon when all of this starts. Ouch, right? Whatever their motivation was for coming to Ezekiel, on the Kibar Canal, they were probably pretty shocked to hear how from God's perspective, Israel's leaders were actually some of the worst offenders of the covenant crimes. God does not pull any punches. But how they're doing what they're doing and why they're doing it is just as important as what is happening here in this section. Do you see, Ezekiel, O mortal, what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark, each in the chamber of his idol, for they think the Lord does not see us. The Lord has abandoned the land. Hmm. But wait, there's more, greater abominations. You will see them. Let's see them too. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north, and behold, Women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will still see greater abominations than these. Okay, wow. What the heck does that mean? So this group of women were just sitting around getting super emotional about this god with a weird name? Nope. They're actually practicing a cultic ritual focused on the descent and eventual return of a pagan god into the underworld, which would have involved the women. It, it could be they're trying any and everything possible to manipulate whatever god they can get a hold of to bring them the prosperity and peace they're looking for. Or it could be that the weeping, at least in part, comes from their shared perspective with the 70 elders. God doesn't see us. He's abandoned us. What do we have left but to try out these other gods, these other rituals? Ah, oh, man, it just stings talking about it. Seriously, they're, 
right there on the temple grounds, practically dancing on the altar that God set up for them to engage with him, saying, ah, let's get hung up on the death of some other God, because they've already killed off the real God in their hearts and minds. One more thing to keep in mind, even though we're back at the north gate, it's a different north gate. We're not moving backwards in this vision. We're actually moving closer and closer to the inner sanctum, the sacreder parts of the sacred space. It might be helpful to do a quick Google search of the Jerusalem temple layout if you want to visualize it. But while there's a gate to the whole temple complex where we started, there's also a gate to the inner court, which we've now moved to. And now we move one closer in verses 16 through 18. Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. He said to me, do you see this son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal in wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. Man, this hurts. Ah, we're getting, we're, we're. We're as close as we've gotten to the inside of the holy temple itself. And right outside of its doors, the leaders have their backs to it, worshiping the sun. Do you see this? Does this mean nothing? Is it just a trivial thing that they're doing this? It's not enough to fill the land with violence, make their bed with fake gods of power and sex and netherworld rituals. They're going to stand right in front of the door and worship the sun that I made for nothing? If you're hearing that without any emotion, then I don't know. Something's wrong. They're sticking the branch up my nose, the Lord says. And what's that particular idiom mean? (laughs) Well, no one really knows. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's not a good thing. Daniel Block's take on this and his commentary on this is to say, look, let's not get so obsessed with figuring out the cultic interpretation of what sticking the branch in someone's nose means, that we miss out what it's doing in the context of this unfolding chapter. Actually, it comes right after the indictment of their provocative violence. Where did that come from, right? We're talking about this idol and that statue and this ritual and that God. And then all of a sudden, these abominations are called out for, oh yeah, having filled the land with violence. Aren't we just talking about religious problems, not moral problems? Uh Uh-huh, like they're that separate. Now look, I'm not saying that people of other religions are all axe murderers. Don't misquote me here. But we're coming to the book of Ezekiel with a false dichotomy if we think that spiritual beliefs and spiritual sins all have to do with just personal ideas and opinions we keep to ourselves, while the physical, tangible stuff that hurts others is an entirely different, separate category of crimes. Okay, we already saw in chapter 7 how these particular cultic abominations are linked with social atrocities. 
Here, in fact, the bloody crimes are a big climax to all these idolatrous evils. This is what you've come out with. And this is what you've shoved in my face, God says. Not just your adultery posted on the refrigerator, but severed limbs inside of it. Is this too minor for you to actually care about, Israel? Are you kidding me? Do you see Israel? Do you see Ezekiel? I see. And you know what? In fact, my eye will not pity anymore. They may turn their back on the sun and back to me and shout, but I will not listen. And instead, we hear some shouting from the Lord's side instead with chapter 9. Then he cried out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Draw near, O executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his shattering weapon in his hand. And among them was a certain man clothed in linen with a writing case at his loins. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Then the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case. The Lord said to him, go through the midst of the city, even through the midst of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations which are being committed in its midst. But to the others, he said in my hearing, go through the city after him and strike. Do not let your eye have pity and do not spare. Utterly slay old men, young men, maidens, little children, and women, but do not touch any man on whom is the mark, and you shall start from my sanctuary. So they started with the elders who were before the temple. And he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain, go out. Thus they went out and struck down the people in the city. As they were striking the people, and I alone was left, I fell on my face and cried out, saying, Alas, Lord God, are you destroying the whole remnant of Israel by pouring out your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is very, very great, and the land is filled with blood, and the city is full of perversion. For they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will have no pity, nor will I spare but I will bring their conduct upon their heads. Then behold, the man clothed in linen at whose loins was the writing case reported saying, I have done just as you have commanded me. This is the word of the Lord. Now we could easily spend a whole episode unpacking this chapter and the way that the marking of a faithful remnant comes into play in the other parts of the Bible. We could try to soften the harshness of young women and children being targeted in this vision by pointing out the ancient Near Eastern war language and figures of speech, or the allusions to holy wars in the promised land with that being reversed here, or the intentional sparing of those who actually grieve and groan with God at what's happening. But let's just notice the big picture here. The central, all-important glory of God residing in the temple that practically makes Israel what it is, leaves the temple in stage one. It's up and out of the Holy of Holies and resting at the threshold, sort of sterilizing the place so that its own violence can come back on its head. 
But even with all that, pay special attention to the way this chapter ends, the way that the Lord resurfaces the central problems of the people's perspective. For they say, the Lord has abandoned the land and the Lord does not see. But as for me, my eye will not pity them, nor will I spare them. I hereby repay them for what they have done. What do we make of all this irony upon irony upon irony, the differences between the way people in here see and think the Lord sees and abandons, and the way the Lord actually sees, notices, and abandons here in these chapters? And when I say irony, this is not like the comedic irony of a cheesy sitcom. It's like the irony of a tragic Shakespeare play, seeing what the characters are too blind to see about themselves. These chapters continue the amping up, crescendo quality in Ezekiel's prophecies. This whole vision amps up the depiction of the people's sins. It amps up the severity of the consequence with the sacred temple itself receiving the judgment for the sacrilege. It amps up Ezekiel's involvement in the unfolding future as he walks, digs, interacts, and cries out, not just about a personal diet anymore, but the destruction of the very system he was born to serve. But woven throughout the devastating intensity and shock is this interplay. Do you see? The Lord does not see. My eye will not spare. Underneath these people's rebellion that boiled over to the point of violence, the underlying problem of that rebellion that prompted God's abandonment of the temple, it's actually poked and prodded and provocatively probed in the middle of this enormous and overwhelming vision. In a sense, the people are right. God has abandoned them. And we see that happening in the vision. But he hasn't abandoned them at the time or in the way that they think. And he actually abandons them in response to their cold-hearted attitude that says, he's just going to leave anyway. What's faithfulness or repentance matter? It's a very nuanced dynamic happening here. Because the ways that we deceive ourselves and the ways that God's responds and justice are actually pretty nuanced too. Let's think about it from a different angle. In a sense, the people are right. God has shut his eyes to their pain. But not at the time or in the way that they think. And he actually refuses to let his eyes, air quotes, pity them because of their cold-hearted attitude that says, ah, God doesn't see any of this. Might as well just forget him, do what we think is best. Do you see what's happening here? Do you catch that self-deception and God's response to it? The people look at God's disposition towards them and they think they already understand everything there is to know about why it is the way it is, about why God is the way God is, why God acts and doesn't act the way that God does. They take some fact or feature about how they're relating to God and they actually presumptuously manipulate it for their own convenience. We'll see that even more next time. But God's judgment is not arbitrary. And it's not an arbitrary fact to be manipulated or presumed upon 
or cold-hearted towards. It's actually a personal, calculated response to that presumption we show him. All right, I'm trying to draw out the sophistication and profundity of the dynamic in this chapter as something we can really relate to and learn from, but I'm worried I'm just playing unhelpful mind games instead. So I'm going to try to land this plane and bring this further down to Earth. We're crafty little devils, aren't we? Especially when we're outside of the grace and transformation of Christ, living in darkness, but even as spirit-indwelled believers. The ways of sin and the obstacles to our relationship with God are nuanced and subtle and ironic and worth probing and letting God probe. We tend to tell ourselves that God sees us when we want him to see us, and he doesn't really pay attention when we don't want him to notice us instead. We tend to manipulate our perception of God and how he interacts with us so that it works out with what we already wanted in the first place. But by doing that, we treat dead and worthless things, unsatisfying and flashy idols, like they're more real and more vivid than the God that actually does notice, who actually does deliver, and who actually invests in our health and goodness and obedience more than we do. While we want to shove the branch in God's nose and say, you don't see God, he in fact turns the tables and says, really? I see more vividly and more clearly than you even see yourself. But do you see? Do you see Ezekiel? Do you see elders of Israel? Do you see listeners? There's even more to see than you want to see. And we're not done yet. If I judge, if I deliver, if I abandon or come near, it will not be because you dismissed me or presumed upon my mercy, but because I have seen and acted accordingly. God is not the statue at the north gate. He's not the carvings in the wall. He's not the ritualistic rain dance that brings good luck. He's the one that everyone misses right in the temple while they parade their rejection and rebellion all around him. And we say, the Lord does not see. He does not see like us in our tunnel vision, no, but he sees. Do we see? Are we willing to step back from the daily spiritual grind of the things we take for granted to actually listen and look at why we have the grace or justice that we do? And no longer turn our backs right in front of God, but actually turn back to him and, and marvel at the one who's actively involved and responsible for a relationship that we get to have with him. Are we going to do that or are we just going to treat all of that like stale facts that we can ponder and twist and use to justify our refusal to even face him? I hate to frame these uh, takeaways on the rebind so negatively so often, but I, I think if we hear and see what God is saying and showing in this vision, our relationship with him will actually be enriched and more personal because those psych-outs and mind games and barriers we put up will be further broken down. Don't shy away from the shock and emotion and challenge of these chapters. Embrace them. And embrace the God who speaks and shows in it as a result. Our final prayer for today isn't an especially creative one, if you're part of a liturgical service. 
Uh, but I thought the discussion of how we see and perceive God as opposed to how he sees and acts called for the Anglican collect of purity. If we walk away from this a bit more knowledgeable or interested, but just as blind to what God is doing and saying and who he is, then, well, I think Ezekiel would be disappointed. So let's pray this to the Lord himself as we respond to what we've witnessed today. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If you've been enjoying The Rebind, be sure to spread the word. Give us a rating on iTunes. Maybe leave a review. Follow us on social media. Click a few buttons and bring a smile to my face. I'm easy to please. We got more of Ezekiel 8-11 to dive into, so join us next week in our unfolding epic. Catch you then.